Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hi, welcome back. This is a Lit Desk bonus episode for Seven Heads, Ten Horns. Uh, Klaus here, coming at you today with a demonological reading of Joyce's Ulysses. What is Ulysses doing on a syllabus of works about the devil? One way I want to answer that question in this episode is to say that Joyce locates the demonic in everyday life in things like bullying, jealousy, sabotage, sarcasm. The demonic becomes a symbol for interpersonal strife and conflict in relationships. 2022 marked the 100th year anniversary of the publication of Ulysses. I started reading it around Bloomsday, which is June 16th. Reading is an interesting verb. I mostly listened to the novel performed dramatically on radio format through RTE, Irish Public Radio, I believe is what that is. And that was a much better experience of taking in Ulysses than I've had before. I've tried to read it a few times and have not succeeded. But hearing it in unabridged form, it was still 29 hours long as a podcast, this really brought it to life. Great sound effects, great music, great acting. And hearing different actors do the different voices makes a lot of the novel clearer. Because sometimes you'll look at the page and you're not sure if this is what someone's saying, you know, which character is thinking, which character is speaking. And that was clarifying. Also, I mean, the, the themes of Ulysses... For, for people who are not totally familiar with the novel, Ulysses is one day in the life of Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedulus. Stephen Dedulus is the protagonist of an earlier Joyce novel, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And we just sort of go through them on, not, you know, it's mundane. A lot of, a lot of the details and events are mundane, running errands, uh, chains of association mentally and the title evokes the odyssey that ulysses is the latinate version of of odysseus and bloom is kind of this every man comp for the the great hero of homer's epic and so things that sort of appear in homer at a mythological, supernatural scale are sort of reduced down to the chaotic bits of life that transpire in Dublin in the early 20th century. So yeah, it takes place June 16th, 1904. And Joyce is writing it from from abroad in, in Trieste and at times in Paris, I believe. But he sort of minutely reconstructs Dublin as... It existed at the beginning of the 20th century. Anyway, yes, I very heartily recommend the, the podcast from RTE. It's a really fantastic way to experience the novel. 
I don't think I would have made it through otherwise. For parts that are a little bit dragging, like the five-hour-long Cersei's episode in episode 15, there's also the ability to sort of speed up the reading so it goes a little faster, like, you know, playing it at, like, not I wouldn't say double the normal speed, but, like, one and a quarter, one and a half, that's pretty good for sort of cutting through some of the these sort of parts that, that linger maybe a bit too long. But yeah, so why do this for the Devil Podcast? The first character you meet in episode one of Ulysses is Buck Mulligan. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him by the mild morning air. He held the bowl aloft and intoned, Intro Tare Dei. Halted, he peered down the dark, winding stairs and called up coarsely, Come up, Kinch! Come up, you fearful Jesuit! Solemnly, he came forward and mounted the round gun rest. He faced about and blessed gravely thrice the tower, the surrounding country, and the awaking mountains. Then, catching sight of Stephen Dedalus, he bent towards him and made rapid crosses in the air, gurgling in his throat and shaking his head. Stephen Dedalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him, equine in its length, and at the light, untonsured hair, grained and hued like pale oak. Buck Mulligan peeped an instant under the mirror and then covered the bowl smartly. Back to barracks, he said sternly. Buck Mulligan, whose full name is Malky Mulligan, Buck Mulligan. He is Stephen Dedulus's roommate and frenemy. Stephen Dedulus, young novelist, artist, erstwhile medical student, impoverished, sort of struggling to get his life in order and his career going is camping out with Buck Mulligan in the Martello Tower, which is a a watchtower, military watchtower constructed during the Napoleonic era in case of invasion. <laughs> uh, so they're, they're, they're sort of rooming in this strange abode. And Mulligan's the first person we meet, and I've always found him to be a really compelling character. He's funny. That's the one thing I'll say about Joyce is compared to some of the other modernists who I like, say like Marcel Proust, Joyce has a really good sense of humor. And I think the humor is something I really appreciated most going through Ulysses this time. I think he shares that with another, you know, great novel of the MLA that I've treated on this podcast recently, which is Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Again, sort of similar instincts, I think, in terms of the deployment of humor, the kind of like madcap, zany style that emerges in their work at different moments. The use of song, the use of vernacular, that, that's something that I think uh, draws them together. In any case, Mulligan is at once funny, clever. He's also cutting. He jokes a lot, mostly at Stephen's expense. He criticizes Stephen for he criticizes Stephen for refusing to kneel down and pray with his mother at the hour of her death. This is an important detail about Stephen Dedulus is that his mother is recently deceased and he's racked by guilt. 
His mother sort of stands in for his conflicted relationship with the Catholic Church. And Mulligan criticizes Stephen for not giving the dying woman the satisfaction of seeing her son, like, united with her in this gesture of piety. Stephen, depressed by his own voice, said, Do you remember the first day I went to your house after my mother's death? Buck Mulligan frowned quickly and said, What? Where? I can't remember anything. I remember only ideas and sensations. Why? What happened in the name of God? You were making tea, and I went across the landing to get more hot water. Your mother and some visitor came out of the drawing room. She asked you who was in your room. Yes. What did I say? I forget. You said, Oh, it's only Daedalus whose mother is beastly dead. A flush, which made him seem younger and more engaging, rose to Buck Mulligan's cheek. Did I say that? Well, what harm is that? He shook his constraint from him nervously. And what is death? He asked. Your mother's or yours or my own? You saw only your mother die. I see them pop off every day in the martyr enrichment and cut up into tripes in the dissecting room. It's a beastly thing and nothing else. It simply doesn't matter. You wouldn't kneel down to pray for your mother on her deathbed when she asked you. Why? Because you have the cursed Jesuit strain in you, only it's injected the wrong way. To me, it's all a mockery and beastly. Her cerebral lobes are not functioning. She calls the doctor Sir Peter Teasel and picks buttercups off the quilt. Humour her till it's over. You crossed her last wish in death, and yet you sulk with me because I don't whinge like some hired mute from Lelouettes. Absurd. I suppose I did say it. I didn't mean to offend the memory of your mother. He had spoken himself into boldness. Stephen, shielding the gaping wounds which the words had left in his heart, said very coldly, I am not thinking of the offence to my mother. Of what, then? Buck Mulligan asked. Of the offence to me, Stephen answered. Buck Mulligan swung round on his heel. Oh, an impossible person, he exclaimed. He walked off quickly round the parapet. Mulligan himself has no piety. He is the author of some body verse that satirizes the uh, satirizes Christology in the Incarnation. Buck Mulligan at once put on a blithe, broadly smiling face. He looked at them, his well-shaped mouth open happily, his eyes, from which he had suddenly withdrawn all shrewd sense, blinking with mad gaiety. He moved a doll's head to and fro, the brims of his Panama hat quivering, and began to chant in a quiet, happy, foolish voice. I'm the queerest young fellow that ever you heard. My mother's a Jew and my father's a bird. With Joseph the joiner I cannot agree. So here's two disciples and Calvary. He held up a forefinger of warning. If anyone thinks that I am and divine, he'll get no free drinks when I'm making the wine, but have to drink water and wish it were plain that I make when the wine becomes water again. He tugged swiftly at Stephen's ash plant in farewell, and running forward to a brow of the cliff, fluttered his hands at his sides like fins or wings of one about to rise in the air, and chanted, Goodbye, now goodbye, write down all I said, and tell Tom, Dick, and Harry I rose from the dead. What's bred in the bone cannot fail me to fly, and all of it's breezy. Goodbye, now goodbye. He capered before them down towards the forty-foot hole, 
fluttering his wing-like hands, leaping nimbly, Mercury's hat quivering in the fresh wind that bore back to them his brief bird-like cries. Haynes, who had been laughing guardedly, walked on beside Stephen and said, <laughs> well, We oughtn't to laugh, I suppose. He's rather blasphemous. I'm not a believer myself, that is to say. Still, his gaiety takes the harm out of it somehow, doesn't it? Uh, what did he call it? Joseph the Joiner? The Ballad of Joking Jesus, Stephen answered. Oh, Haynes said. You've heard it before? Three times a day after meals, Stephen said dryly. You're not a believer, are you? Haynes asked. I mean, a believer in the narrow sense of the word. Creation from nothing, and miracles, and a personal God. There's only one sense of the word, it seems to me, Stephen said. Mulligan's based off of the real-life historical figure, Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, who, like Mulligan, is a, a medical student. So at once a medical student and also a, a rising figure in the uh, literary scene of Dublin in the early 20th century. And so those are, those are some th things that join those, those people together. And uh, James Joyce himself did room with Gogarty in the Martello Tower around the same time. So there's a lot of parallels. I mean, people, you know, with, with good reason resist just, you know, sort of crude identification of the characters of the novel with the historical figures of Joyce and Gogarty. But you do see this sort of source material there. And like Stephen and Buck, Gogarty and Joyce were a classic frenemy situation. In terms of the theological relevance of, of Mulligan as sort of a personification of evil, we have at once the sort of petty jealousies and undercutting and undermining that go on between Mulligan and Stephen, mostly at, at Mulligan's you know, initiation. There's also Mulligan's own blasphemy throughout especially the first episode telemachus the beginning of the novel runs like this he held the bowl aloft and intoned and you hear mulligan in the first moments of the novel as he shaves uh parodying the tridentine mass with the priests approach to the altar and uh, holding lather for, for shaving rather than a chalice with the, the, uh, the blood of Christ. And so we have seen throughout the podcast how the inversion or the mockery of, of sacred rituals is the image of the satanic perversion of religious practice for a lot of uh, demonologists and diabolists. So that's something that stands out. Probably more devastating though is is how insistent Mulligan is in turning the knife and his nickname for Stephen is Kinch, which is a, which refers to like a knife blade. Turning the knife about how Stephen acted during the death of his mother and when Stephen reports on how Mulligan really hurt his feelings by sort of flippantly referring to his mother's death. It's like, oh, it's Dedulus with his mother beastly dead, he says to his aunt at some point. Mulligan 
has no real recollection of saying this. And then when he kind of can uh, brought to admit that he did say it or he could have said it, he's like, well, what difference does it make? She is dead. It doesn't matter. Everyone's going to die. And he sort of plays off Stephen's like, you know, relatable injury at, at being sort of used this way in casual conversation. And so we see Mulligan is, is someone who, while like exhibiting a lot of charm, knowing how to get people to smile and to laugh, sort of this clownish, you know, highly educated and erudite buffoon type sort of carousing partier, poet, frat boy extraordinaire. He has that sort of insight about almost the more superficial parts of social contact, though very useful. But when it comes to actually caring about people, he is mostly self-serving. So that's one thing to, to bring out. Another piece of the negative dynamics of the relationship between Stephen and Buck Mulligan is the debts they owe each other, the money question, and the concrete problems of cohabitation, of being roommates. So one of the things that unites Leopold Bloom, the everyman hero of the novel, about whom I will say very little, I guess, this episode, uh, Bloom is just a canvasser for newspaper ads and probably the most famous cuckold in literature, I guess, <laughs> what we would say about him. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll sort of leave him in in parentheses for the time being, if not the duration of this bonus episode. But both Bloom and Stephen are missing the keys to their residences uh, throughout the novel. And so Stephen allows Mulligan to keep the key to the tower, the Martello Tower. And ultimately, as Stephen predicts in the first episode, he will not be sleeping there anymore. Like the end of their roommate situation is at hand. It isn't, it isn't out in the open, but Stephen just feels like they're, he's being abandoned or he's being locked out or he, or he just doesn't want to deal with them anymore. Uh, the third roommate has been a this sort of efficient cause of this in the person of the British, the Britisher, the Englishman Haynes, who has come and we see Haynes as an anti-Semite. Haynes is the kind of annoying person who speaks Gaelic or Irish better than most Irish people and then like shakes his finger at the Irish for not having any command over their own patrimony, their own ancestral language, like really condescending. And Mulligan's approach to Haynes is to try to milk him for money, try to use him for, for, for partying, basically. Stephen is alarmed at Haynes' presence because in the middle of the night, Haynes starts raving about a Black Panther and starts firing his gun. And this will become... One of the things Ulysses does as a novel is it does these parodies of different literary styles. And at one point, Mulligan tells the, the gothic horror version of Haynes's case of the Black Panther, which rules but in any case mulligan is lending stephen his cast off clothing stephen owes mulligan quite a bit of money mulligan is always pressing stephen for money so that they can go so that stephen can go pay for drinks these people are drinking all day uh there's a lot of drinking in ulysses 
And so there's that kind of material tension in their, in their relationship. And at the end of the first episode, Mulligan is like swimming merrily in the waters off Sandy Cove. And Stephen looks at him anticipating this whole situation with being locked out of the tower, being abandoned, sees him swimming, a voice sweetened and sustained called to him from the sea. Turning the curve, he waved his hand. It called again. A sleek brown head, a seal's far out on the water, round. Usurper. The word usurper is how Stephen sort of catalogs Mulligan's appearance in his mind. One of the major texts that's sort of operating in the background with the Odyssey is Hamlet. And so King Claudius as the usurper is an image that comes readily to hand. King Claudius, you know, Hamlet's uncle who kills Hamlet's father. And the usurpation charge gets at the kind of professional jealousy between the two. Because Mulligan is actually more recognized by leading lights of the Dublin literary scene more so than than Stephen. And so Stephen is jealous of Mulligan's access and recognition by these poets. On the other hand, Mulligan actually seems to be jealous of Stephen's talent at writing and his erudition, which is profound. Annoyingly so. I mean, I think one of the things that's hard about reading Ulysses is how it's just like the layers of reference that come flying at you, especially when Stephen is, we're sort of in Stephen's head or we're sort of working with Stephen in one of the episodes, like uh, Proteus is like the famously very difficult one. It's really metaphysical, scholastic, but like with like five languages being mixed in, you know, Stephen speaks Irish, he speaks Italian, he speaks French. There's, you know, he basically speaks Latin, church Latin. Uh, So you have a lot of that with like, you know, German and Spanish also mixed in there. So like it's it can be hard. And so one of Stephen's points of erudition, one of his theories that he's trying to capitalize on as an entree into the intellectual scene of Dublin is his interpretation of Hamlet, a kind of interpretation that is almost psychoanalytic psychological for sure, theological, relating to the bi- actually bi- the, the facts of William Shakespeare's biography and reading Hamlet as dealing with paternity, thinking about the Trinity and especially the consubstantial relationship between the father and the son and the Trinity. But also thinking about adultery and Shakespeare's own experiences of being an adulterer, of, as being a cuckold, having his wife cheat on him with his brothers, which, uh, you know, apparently is the cause of, uh, of Shakespeare leaving her his second bed and not his first in his will. And Mulligan knows that Mulligan, I think, appreciates Stephen's interpretation of Hamlet and is always like sort of trying to get him to tease it to Haynes to sort of, sort of see if, you know, to sort of like do show and tell with it and trot it out. And in the moment when Stephen actually is delivering his theory of Hamlet to a group of intellectuals at the National Library in Dublin, Mulligan interrupts him 
And so Stephen was like building up to this crescendo of clarification and was doing it free of of interference and like sort of battling to to sort of get the recognition. And the moment he does, Mulligan shows up and threatens to ruin everything. The son consubstantial with the father. Amen. Responded from the doorway. Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Answer act. A ribald face, sullen as a dean's, Buck Mulligan came forwards then, blithe and motley, towards the greeting of their smiles. My telegram. You were speaking of the gaseous vertebrate, if I mistake not, he asked of Stephen. Primrose vested, he greeted gaily with his doffed Panama as with a bauble. They make him welcome. Vas du verlacht wirst du noctinen. Brood of mockers, Photius, Pseudomalachi, Johann Most. He who himself begot, middle of the Holy Ghost, and himself sent himself Agenbeier, between himself and others who, put upon by his fiends, stripped and whipped, was nailed like bat to barn door, starved on cross tree, who let him bury, stood up, harrowed hell, fared into heaven, and there these nineteen hundred years sitteth on the right hand of his own self, but yet shall come in the latter day to doom the quick and dead, when all the quick shall be dead already. Gloria in excelsis Deo. He lifts hands. Veils fall. Oh, flowers. Bells with bells with bells acquiring. Yes, indeed, the Quaker librarian said. A most instructive discussion. Mr. Mulligan, I'll be bound, has his theory too of the play and of Shakespeare. Buck Mulligan thought, puzzled. Shakespeare, he said. I seem to know the name. The Shakespeare line is so stupid, but it still cracks me up. So again, even in we see in Mulligan's interruptions... There is the parody of, of uh, Catholic ritual practice with the Amen and the glory in excelsis Deo. Also, at a key moment, Stephen is working up to giving an account of the theme of incest in Shakespeare's works. And he starts to appeal to Thomas Aquinas, who's like his sort of fame, his favorite theologian and philosopher. And he says, the name, he goes, you know, and St. Thomas and Mulligan interrupts him. He's like, ora pro nobis. This, this uh, litany, mocking the litany, the lists of the saints and the sacred beings who are to pray for the faithful and the sinners. This is sort of liturgically instantiated in the Roman Catholic Church and so on and so forth. So, yeah, Mulligan mocks that, of course interrupting Stephen and so he's this is one of these points where you sense that Mulligan appreciates Stephen's intellect but like actually is apprehensive of it and is trying to run him down a bit is trying to undercut his ability to actually get the whole idea out in a coherent and thoughtful way he's trying to make fun of it and so one of these major epithets of of the devil and and Mulligan is is the mocker and and Stephen makes that connection. He refers to Mulligan in this episode, Scylla and Charybdis. He refers to Mulligan as mine enemy. He refers to him as the mocker. Throughout the novel, Stephen will compare him to various heresies or schismatics like Photius, who helped preempt the East-West schism in the Middle Ages. Or else Sibelius, who was represented at least by 
theological polemicist as a modalist who denied the distinctive persons of the Trinity and subsumed them all under one divine identity, one personage. By comparing Mulligan to these famous heresiarchs and heretics, we sort of have this bathos of elevating a drunken frat boy to the level of an intellectual rival like Arius to the Nicene theologians or the Cappadocian fathers. It sort of is this another example of the kind of continuum effect of grand historical events and mythologies with the, the quotidian aspects of the novel. We have a dualistic sensibility to the whole thing. You know, and this, this, of course, means that Stephen must be on the side of all holiness, which is a little bit preposterous, um, considering how you know crazily horny he seems to be through the whole thing. Though not not as horny as Mulligan, I guess I would say. But he even compares Mulligan to to like a gargoyle. The mocker is never taken seriously when he is most serious. They talked seriously of mocker seriousness. Buck Mulligan's again heavy face eyed Stephen a while, then his head wagging, he came near drew a folded telegram from his pocket. His mobile lips read, smiling with new delight. Telegram! He said. Wonderful inspiration. Telegram! A papal bull! He sat on a corner of the unlit desk, reading aloud joyfully. The sentimentalist is he who would enjoy without incurring the immense debtorship for a thing done. Signed, Daedalus. Where did you launch it from? The Kipps? Oh, College Green. Have you drunk the four quid? The aunt is going to call on your unsubstantial father. Telegram! Malachy Mulligan, the ship, Lower Abbey Street. Oh, you peerless mama. Oh, you priestified kinshite. Joyfully, he thrust message and envelope into a pocket, but keened in querulous brogue. It's what I'm telling you, Mr. Honey. It's queer and sick we were, Haynes and myself. The time himself brought us in. "'Twas murmur we did, for a gallus potion would rouse a friar, I'm thinking, and he limp with leching. And we one hour and two hours and three hours in conneries, sitting civil, waiting for pints apiece. He wailed. And we to be there, Mavrone, and you to be unbeknownst, sending us your conglomerations the way we to have our tongues out a yard long, like the drouthy clerics do be fainting for a pussful. <laughs> Stephen laughed. Quickly, warningfully, Buck Mulligan bent down. The tramper Singh is looking for you, he said, to murder you. He heard you pissed on his whole door in Blastool. He's out in Pampooties to murder you. Me? Stephen exclaimed. That was your contribution to literature. Buck Mulligan gleefully bent back, <laughs> laughing to the dark, <laughs> eavesdropping ceiling. Murder you! He laughed. Harsh gargoyle face that warred against me over our mess of hash of lights and rue San Andre des Arts. When Stephen first sees Mulligan, he compares him to the German anarchist Johann Most. And there's another German connection because when Stephen is about to make this comparison to Johann Most, he quotes a passage in German, Was du verlachst, wirst du noch dienen. What you mock, you will come to serve. And sort of setting up his own fantasies of like a triumphant revenge against the literary establishment and against Mulligan himself, you could you could gather. When I first saw the German line, I assumed it was from Goethe's Faust or something, but apparently it's a German translation of Turgenev's original Russian essay on Hamlet and Don Quixote. Most himself who parodied Trinitarian statements 
to describe himself and his and his enemies. So Stephen's comparing Mulligan to an anarchist, to a godless revolution, like sort of bomb throwing, you know, radical. And even as you know, Stephen is sort of his orthodoxy is sort of seems uh, flexible. He does seem to understand himself to be orthodox and devout whether he wants to be or not it's like this it's the intellectual tradition with which he's operating so he's trying to make the best of it that he can he's trying to use the the talents that it has and the capacities it has whereas mulligan is just fully cynically dismissive of of catholic theology and so that's another point of tension between them So I think I'll end here with sort of a coda to why I find Mulligan relevant for this podcast. It's like a way of thinking of evil on a continuum from the frenemy to the old enemy. Just as myth and epic exist on a continuum in Ulysses with the mundane events and introspections and associations of a June day in early 20th century Dublin, I think evil is also on a continuum. It's less of this sort of mythological combat and more of like evil as it manifests in the slings and arrows of pettiness uh, and sometimes more than pettiness. You know, Mulligan, at after like a night of serious drinking, manages to ditch Stephen and go with Haynes on the last train back to Sandy Mount. And so Stephen is effectively stranded and it's very intoxicated I think with, you know, through the aid of some absinthe he consumed at a certain point and is basically taken in by Leopold Bloom, who has been like sort of staying out and doing this and that and running his errands as a way of avoiding his home where his wife Molly is is having an affair with uh, the singer and promoter Blazes Boylan. And so Bloom like knows this is happening and sort of wants to stay away and is like sort of seems like really anxious about it and maybe also kind of aroused by it it's like he's there's a lot of ambivalence in any case he's out and about and he kind of picks steven up and keeps him from being killed by some british soldiers basically but yeah mulligan leaves him in the dust and leaves you know there's there's other friends who also betray steven but you know this sets up why someone might want to leave dublin (laughs) but you know i think the reason the other reason is that Mulligan has so much wit. I find him compelling because he's funny. And I think probably, maybe I'm not the only person who's had this experience with a kind of charismatic person who's amazingly witty, who has like this winning smile, who makes everyone laugh, and at the same time cannot be trusted. Would be dangerous to trust. And maybe you find that out the hard way. And so I think Mulligan actually is a great representation of this kind of person who I think is like, you know, I'm not calling these people evil per se. I mean, maybe Joyce's and maybe Stephen experiences in that way, but this person who can cause complications and problems, who is a kind of soft antagonist or who shifts into an antagonist over time and yeah, causes problems. Like the theological treatments of the the devil we've seen through our long, if irregular journey on this podcast, there's a kind of superficiality to evil. This goes back to like the privative theory of evil. 
and I always love Hannah Arendt's sketch of it, her gloss on primitive evil. It's like the mildew of the universe. There's like, there's no depth to evil. And in a way that relates to that, Mulligan is witty, but there's, there's not a lot there. There's not a lot of focus. And he seems to resent Stephen because Stephen has focus. Stephen wants to cultivate depth. Stephen promises that it will be 10 years before he writes his, his masterpiece or his first novel. He needs to gather the material. He needs to work. And Mulligan doesn't want to work hard. Mulligan wants to go out and party, get laid, whatever. Stephen needs 10 years. Mulligan would be lucky to focus for 10 minutes. In that 10 minutes, he might come up with an insanely funny poem. It's not that he's not smart, but there's a kind of superficiality to his lack of focus. So for me, those are some of the reasons to, to bring it out. I mean, the novel invites a kind of demonic quality to Mulligan. In, in sort of the these sort of epithets of the mocker and the enemy and his betrayal. But also I think like this kind of this kind of personality, this kind of character is is interesting. And it, it's not evil or the, the demonic in a mythological, world historical combat kind of myth, but it's the way people experience adversity and like personality differences and conflicts of interest in their everyday life. And I think that's an interesting translation point for this figure of the diabolic in the history and the cultural surveys we've been sort of doing in the podcast. I wonder if Buck is actually a pretty good approximation of what it was like hanging out with Satan in heaven right before he started organizing the rebellion against God's throne. And what I'm sort of free associating about is uh, the Satan of Milton's Paradise Lost. Just, Just some food for thought. Yeah, thank you for listening. I was really happy to get through Ulysses. It it happened over the course of a month, and it was kind of random. I'm going to link the RTE podcast. I also listened to the companion podcast they had um, that was hosted by, sorry, one second, Jerry O'Flaherty and Fritz Sen from 2004. The recording of the novel in its dramatic form is from 1982. Apparently it ran for like 29 straight hours on Bloomsday one one year. Um, So yeah, I really recommend those. I think they did a tremendous job. And for me, like it was just, it was a perfect way to, to take in Ulysses because Ulysses is all about, you know, Bloom's running errands. Everyone's running errands. Everyone's doing their little sort of daily routine Everyone's just sort of this sort of like the, the smallness of just like the things we have to do in our days to sort of get by and put food on the table and clean up and, and everything, you know. And so I was listening to it while getting groceries and doing the dishes and cleaning up. And I think instead of like sitting like Jacques Derrida in Loker reading room in Widener library and like sort of pouring over the sort of profound scriptural essence of this you know world historical classic i think experiencing it in the act of like just living your life is actually kind of the best fit so i I really love the podcast format for that obviously i'm making a podcast now so like i have a predisposition for 
appreciating the good things that podcasts do for us. But it really worked and clicked with Ulysses. So yeah, uh, thanks for listening. Like, review, subscribe, do all the things. Uh, Tell your friends if you are enjoying this. And uh, yeah, give us a shout, a review on iTunes. And yeah, we'll see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.